You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 9th of May 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. Britain has no intention of walking away. Instead, we will cooperate with the other parties to ensure that while Iran continues to restrict its nuclear program, then its people will benefit from sanctions relief in accordance with the central bargain. The remaining parties to the Iran nuclear deal insist that the agreement stands without the United States. But does it? Can it? My guests Michael Binion and Sebastian Borger will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including a possible revival of military cooperation among the countries choosing to stay in the EU, the ongoing softening, if not outright, thwarting of Brexit by the UK's unelected upper house, and at the risk of prompting existential terror among the world's opinion slingers, have we lost sight of what the point of an op-ed page even is. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. So, welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Michael Binion, Foreign Affairs Specialist at The Times, and Sebastian Borger, London Correspondent for Berliner Zeitung. Welcome both. And we will start here in the UK. Among the very many weird ramifications of the 2016 Brexit vote has been the spectacle of the people who are usually the first to denounce the House of Lords as an ossified, irrelevant mausoleum of unelected hacks, toffs and time servers, changing their minds about this vital, honourable convocation of patriots, sages and scholars The Lords have strewn several roadblocks in the path of Brexit, most recently and spectacularly backing an amendment which would effectively keep the EU in the European economic area, despite neither the Conservative government nor the Labour opposition backing it. Um, Sebastian, first of all, how very strange does this look to citizens of European nations who prefer to elect their upper houses? I've reported on the House of Lords for a long time, ever since Tony Blair gave us that marvellous reform halfway house where he <laughs> threw out all the hereditary peers bar 92 who then went on to elect uh, a few members among well they were elected amongst themselves very very odd uh, the only elected members in the house of lords anyway great fun um well, you know what I'm what I'm telling my my readers is don't um, don't think they can um, actually decide anything. In the end, it's the House of Commons that decides. But what they are there for, namely to revise legislation and to to make the government think again, they are doing quite well, I think. And they, they've they've done that over the years in a, in in a number of uh, uh, topics. And and Brexit is obviously one of them. Is it twelve defeats now or fourteen that the government? suffered it's something like that they are piling them up um and and i think you know i don't for a moment think that um the single market um amendment will stand but i do think that the customs union amendment is quite likely actually to go through the house of commons where let's remember theresa may does not have a majority 
How politically tricky is this for the House of Lords, Michael? Is it possible? They, they do exist, as Sebastian has pointed out, and there's this strange uh, neath the world. I think if you were establishing a modern democracy, you probably wouldn't uh, organise your upper chamber uh, in this manner, but this is what Britain has. Um, is there a chance they could overplay it uh, and be seen to be thwarting the people's will to the extent that the Daily Mail et al. go all enemies of the people at them? Well, they could, but they can't hold it up forever. That's the point. The Commons can, in the end, overrule them. And therefore, uh, even if they have a defiant gesture, uh, I don't think it's a threat to the elected government. But it will make it more difficult for the elected government. And particularly, they give publicity and voice and arguments to the Tory rebels on in the House of Commons, who themselves are very uneasy about what's going to happen. I mean, it's interesting that the Labour Party didn't think that the Lords was the place to make their big revolt. So they didn't actually mandate their own Labour peers to vote against uh, the government on this. They, they more or less said, uh, don't vote, abstain on this. On uh, the single market. On the single market. They thing. did on the customs union. Yes, on the customs union. Well, they that's where they're going them. to make their big pitch because mm. the customs union comes up in the Commons. And, of course, this is where Theresa May very possibly could suffer a massive defeat, at least a serious defeat, because there are enough conservatives who are prepared to put what they say party uh, country above party and vote with the Labour Party that's putting an amendment forward. And because we now have fixed parliaments, it will not be or cannot be seen as a vote of confidence. Therefore, the government's threat, if you vote for the rebels, you'll bring down the government, isn't a, a worthwhile threat. It isn't a real threat. So what will happen is that they will pass a piece of legislation that then means the government cannot remove Britain from the customs union. They can go ahead with every other bit of Brexit, but effectively that, which is the heart of the whole Brexit uh, issue to many people, that will remain. Uh, Sebastian, is it your sense that the UK, whether deliberately or in a, in a fit of absence of mind, as it were, is, is nudging itself towards the, the Norway model, which has been sort of touted by some uh, still vaguely hopeful Remainers as a plausible compromise option? I, you know, if only, if only it were. I, I, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm watching it in awe uh, and I... All I can say, we hope we Germans. I think the ones who who want Britain close and 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 who who worry about the economic implications as well as the the the, the geopolitical implications, we want Britain close. And the Norway model is the obvious one, the obvious one. But and and there will be there there would be solutions found. I'm sure. But the problem, I think, Brussels in 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 one Brussels is doing all sorts of. Stupid things, but I think one thing they're, they're right in saying it's you, Brits, who have to decide. Yes. Well, once you've decided it, once you have a cabinet which is actually agreed on anything at all, we will we will try to make it work, and I think they will. Well, that's the interesting thing because the cabinet clearly is deeply split now, and it's almost got to the point where Theresa May's got to say. I have decided we are going to remain in this model of the customs union or not the full customs union, well, some compromise. And if you, Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson, don't like it, you are sacked. And she needs to say that loud and clear. And what's more, she needs to say, and you are sacked and you are sacked and you are sacked so that she clears out eight of her cabinet members. Now, that is a pretty nuclear option. But if we're going to have any government that does anything, 
She needs to assert her well, authority. On that subject, uh, Michael, and I, I may have thought this further through than anybody in the government has, but <laughs> is it possible uh, that despite uh, Theresa May's official disappointment with the Lords, she's not entirely displeased by their blocking and obstructing, you know, lest we forget that Theresa May is in fact a Remainer, I or think was in fact a Remainer during the campaign? I think it's very possible. I think what she's done... Uh, and she's been widely criticised for it, and in many ways rightly criticised, but what she's done is she's stepped back and let them fight it out to see where the stronger side is going to be. And she's let them uh, get to the point where many of the those who are wavering have realised that full withdrawal would be a disaster for the British economy. And so she's now putting her weight behind some kind of um, compromise solution that keeps Britain at least linked to the European Union in some ways, possibly in a trade deal of some kind, uh, which might mean the customs union. And therefore, the Lords articulating this loud and clear have made the arguments for her that she can't really uh, voice as head of the government. OK, well, let's move on slightly to the ongoing adjustment of the seating arrangements at the EU in anticipation of the UK's departure. It has been widely assumed that Brexit will result in a straightforward contest between France and Germany for de facto leadership of the EU. But is it possible that they may have something more collaborative in mind? The UK's decampment also removes the major obstacle to the persistent fantasy of a pan-European military. And this week, Germany announced that it would press on with plans to buy six new c one. 30J Hercules transport aircraft with a view to establishing a joint unit with France. Um, Sebastian, as you will be wearily familiar, the, the spectre of a European military has been this thing that uh, Eurosceptics in the UK have conjured up for decades. And not just Eurosceptics, I mean, well, in, Brits in, in general. Indeed, well, and, in, and, indeed <laughs> there, and indeed there are actually people, of course, in Europe who are quite enthusiastic about the Very idea. few, yes. But it's, it's, it, the, just be, before we talk about the detail here, the pan-European military, is it a thing that is ever going to happen in a billion years or not? No. <laughs> See, I didn't think so either. Um, look, seriously, first of all, I think you're wrong on, on the, on the um, uh, rivalry between France and Germany. I, I, I honestly think the view in Berlin is uh, we uh, Germans can only succeed in Europe if we've got the French close with us. Mm. And that means, um, you know, using their uh, their. Uh, power as far as their global reach, their atomic weapons, etc., uh, and and hiding our rather larger economic power so that it looks like a, a marriage of evil, uh, of equals. <laughs> you, you nearly gave the whole game away there, yeah, Sebastian. Sorry, sorry. Uh, a benign marriage of equals. Yes, yes. Um, so that's the start. The, the, secondly, I think France will be much keener on close military op cooperation with Britain yes. than with anybody yes. else. Why? Because these are the only two armies in Europe, give and take a few uh, nice squadrons of the Danish and the Norwegian army and, and, and you know, two or three hundred special troops in Germany who, who, who are actually battle-hardened, who know how to fight a war, who know how to get to a to a theatre and actually, you know, get their troops uh, on uh, from the ship or from the plane into into a theatre. So, um, 
I, I think that's all overdone. It's it's important for 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 Europeans to cooperate, because it it we we're spending far too many billions on 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 tasks, which really we we should we should uh, bring together and and uh, each uh, nation does something which they are very good at. But, well, but well, there are examples of that, of course. There's there been are. a German Dutch course since 1995. Last month, the German air defence unit was placed under Dutch command. Um, and there's plenty of other examples of that sort of cooperation. But, Michael, will Brexit, as Sebastian suggests, will it actually make any difference to military cooperation? NATO is surely the more important framework. Yes, it is. Of course, there will be a certain distance between Britain and its other allies in NATO because they don't see each other institutionally uh, as often as they used to. Uh, the ministers who attend will not be uh, there at when they discuss common foreign and security policy, for example, or whatever. But it is certainly, as Sebastian said, very true that the key ally for Britain will remain France. And that cooperation, I don't think, will be diminished or lessened. And Britain will be doubly keen to show that it is fully with the French or indeed with all the other NATO allies in the future to show that, you know, as Theresa said, we're not leaving Europe. We may be leaving the EU. We're not leaving Europe. And the French feel very comfortable with cooperating with Britain because they know each other. They fought in Bosnia for however many years it was. They fought. Uh, Britain is even talking about sending some help to the French in Mali and various places around the world. Uh, and uh, it, it, it fits. The two countries are both members of the Permanent Security Council, permanent members of the Security Council. So they both have world responsibilities. And it just fits. And I think Britain will make very sure that for the French... Britain remains a more attractive partner than some notional new alliance with Germany. Uh, Sebastian, just going back to that that thought of the the uh, Franco-German relationship after Brexit, do you, do you think that in no way are they meaning do they do they meaningfully see each other as rivals at all? Um, I honestly don't. I honestly don't. I I think both <laughs> sides are clear that they need each other they 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 you know don't forget we, we're talking about military and brexit and all that it's it, that's a sideshow that the the main problem that we still haven't sorted out is the eurozone and the eurozone needs a, a fresh impetus and fresh ideas and they are hammering you know macron made that great speech and and basically asked the germans to put more money towards it which uh, which didn't go down too well in berlin and but they've got to hammer it out he'll get the charlemagne prize tomorrow he's meeting Merkel uh, behind closed doors. They've got to move the Eurozone forward. Otherwise, that's the next crisis we shall talk about in, 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 in and pretty soon, I'm afraid. OK, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Michael Binion and Sebastian Borger. Coming up next, the world declines to hold its breath, waiting for Donald Trump's Plan B on Iran. <laughs> Monocle's May issue invites you to hang out with the world's brightest-eyed, bushest-tailed new world leader. Jacinda Ardern is New Zealand's Prime Minister on a mission to turn her lively first 100 days in office into years of growth and good vibrations. Talking of which, we switch to California, dreaming of a modernist mecca under cloudless skies, happy people in lovely homes. We're moving to LA, incidentally. 
Elsewhere, let us show you fauna. Dogs like this guy, coughing cartoons like these, porcelain pets, pussies, pilches. We also suspend our disbelief with a visit to the studio of the artist and the set designer, Ez Devlin, who's done big things for Adele and Beyonce. We take five with jazz saviour Kamazi Washington, we sit pretty and count down our 50 favourite design innovations and marvel at Belgrade's Palace of Serbia and its marble rigour and surreal spotlessness. It's always a good time for a glass of something fortifying, of course, and so we have a vino with Adam Gopnik, hello Adam, a flirtini in Yokohama, and finish the bottle with these kiwis. And we're back to New Zealand then. Why are these suitcases smiling? Well, now you know why. Monocle's May issue is out now. Get your copy today or subscribe at monocle.com. Tune in to the Monocle Daily on Monocle 24 weekdays at 2200 London time. We unpack the stories that have been dominating the discussion in Europe and North America and set the agenda for a new day in Asia. The show features regular insights and analysis from Monocle's bureau in Toronto and New York, special guests there and across the Americas, as well as experts and analysts at our studios in London. Whether it's industry-focused reports on anything from art and architecture to business and entertainment, or a light-hearted guide to how to spend the perfect weekend in a great city somewhere in the world, you're in good hands. Monocle's network of global correspondents are your guides. Join our team every weekday for the Monocle Daily on Monocle 24. You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Mullister. With me are Michael Binion and Sebastian Borger. It's a little less than 24 hours since US President Donald Trump announced... It's a little more than 24 hours now that I think of it. Since US President Donald Trump announced his decision to withdraw his country from the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, better known as the Iran nuclear deal. This has probably been more than enough time to figure out why Trump did it, i.e. that it's something that Barack Obama did and therefore it must be undone. Figuring out what happens next might take a while longer. So far, every other party to the deal, Iran included, has stated that they intend to stick to it. But how possible is that? Um, Michael, we, we heard a clip at the top of the show of the UK's Brexiteer Foreign Secretary, Boris Johnson, talking about the obvious folly of leaving an international agreement without any clear idea of what you think you're going to do next. I mean, honestly, what sort of country would do such a thing? Um, can, realistically, the Iran deal really be held together without the US? Well, five countries want it to be held together. And the question is, uh, will Iran now be subject to global international sanctions or just US sanctions, which are going to be reimposed? And will those US sanctions mean that all trade, as in the past, is then cut off from Iran, all significant trade? Now, of course, that is what would trigger the Iranians to then roar ahead uh, with the um, development of nuclear weapons as though there'd never been a treaty. And that's exactly what the Revolutionary Guard, who are in a life and death struggle with the moderates in Iran, that's what they would like. But, of course, others want to continue trading with Iran. The difficulty is, will the US then sanction other countries that trade with Iran? Well, they've tried doing this in the past. It's deeply unpopular when they try to tell French or British or German or anyone else, you may not trade with Iran. But there's, of course, been, there's been some rumblings of that nature already. Yes, there have. And there is an outlet to that. I mean, they could sell their oil denominated in Chinese currency instead of in dollars. 
Uh, and the Chinese would be quite happy to do that. And since they take a large amount of the oil in any case, uh, what's the problem there? Uh, they could bypass U.S. banking regulations. They could actually be quite defiant, uh, attempted extraterritorial legislation. So they could continue trading. Unfortunately, some of the things that the Iranians really want, such as new Airbus aircraft, components of those are made in America. Some, even only a small amount, but enough to block the whole thing, which could be very difficult. But as long as Iran doesn't feel it's completely now shut out of international trade, there may be some way of, of getting around the biting effect of those sanctions. Um, Sebastian, we, we've seen in the last few hours the Iranian Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khamenei uh, popping up to play bad cop to uh, uh, President Hassan Rouhani's relatively moderate cop. Um, Rouhani made a statement yesterday which seemed like a fairly clear holding pattern, the kind of thing you just issue while you figure out what you're going to do next. Uh, Khamenei, who is of course the man whose word really counts, has said today he doesn't trust Britain, France or Germany uh, and, if the, and if the agreement is to proceed, he wants new guarantees. Should he get them? Well, I mean, there there will inevitably be new negotiations, won't there? Um, we can't simply uh, carry on as before. Um, it's it's the, 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 the two questions, and I think they're interlinked, are um, how serious is Iran about um, playing not, ju not just... Um, holding its nuclear program, but playing a much more constructive role in its region. Mm. And, you know, you cannot. The way they've interfered in the Syrian civil war and the way they, their, their Hezbollah allies are increasingly threatening Israel, uh, you cannot do that on the one hand and on the other hand um, ask the West to, to, um, to uh, you know, come towards you. You've got to give. It's a, it's a matter of giving take for the west for the for particularly the three Euro western european countries germany um france and and britain the question will be how how big is our wish to antagonize trump um, michael this this does lead to what i thought was the only i guess salient and sane comprehensible and actually demonstrably provable aspect of Trump's statement yesterday, whereas he's not wrong, is he, when he or whoever wrote the speech uh, says that Iran has used the funds freed up by the deal to further fund uh, the adventures of its proxies in, as Sebastian says, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq and Yemen. He's absolutely right, yes. And I think that is one of the key concerns because the nuclear deal was always limited in its scope. It was always confined to the actual development of nuclear capability by Iran. It didn't try, or it may have tried, but it didn't succeed in imposing clear limits to Iran's foreign policy and behavior either regionally or around the globe, uh, as long as that wasn't uh, developing nuclear weapons. And of course, as we have seen, they have been uh, not only a destabilizing force, but a highly disruptive and contentious one. And of course, of all the people who are happiest to see the end of this nuclear deal, Saudi Arabia is a very loud and active voice in influencing Washington. So I think Mr. Trump, I mean, he may actually force Iran to come back uh, with a new proposal, and he may drive a new hard bargain. I think it's unlikely because uh, so much face has been lost that that will make it very difficult for Iran to go back to the negotiating table. But he does uh, possibly have a big stick in his hand and say, well, look, if we want to change Iran's behavior in Syria or in the region, it's time we did something about it. And a lot of Western allies agree with him on that.
On the subject of the big stick, Sebastian, is that basically the problem that the agreement now has, that without the United States in it, it is no longer underpinned by even the implicit threat of military force? Well, I thought the whole diplomacy uh, was um, underpinned by the fact that we we couldn't, we didn't have the, the threat of force um, unless you count Israeli airstrikes, uh, which, you know, were discussed for about 10 years and were wisely not carried out because we, we, we realized that it, they wouldn't actually have, uh, you know, taken out the, the, the uh, nuclear program as they did in Iraq and Syria. So uh, I, I, I just think that that, um, that threat is... No, we, we, what we're talking about is a, is a country in turmoil uh, very far below its, its economic and cultural possibilities. It needs, it needs interchange international with, with, with the international community. It needs trade. It's, a, it, it, it's got a great culture. It's got great op, um, potential. But but they've got to understand that they cannot go around the, the region and 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 destabilize uh, uh, other governments while at the same time wanting wanting that that trade and that openness. Okay, well, finally tonight, uh, yesterday, the New York Times ran on its op-ed page a piece by Barry Weiss entitled Meet the Renegades of the Intellectual Dark Web. This was a profile of a group of profoundly tedious online blowhards of whom the subhead asked, should we be listening? This was instantly recognisable to professional scriveners as a question to which the answer is no, a device beloved of headline writers seeking a get-out clause for a transparent wind-up. Social media nevertheless erupted as might have been predicted, the the latest in a series of similar brouhaha's or bruzhaha, I've never figured out which is the plural, caused by liberal outlets promoting illiberal views. Uh, Michael, we've also seen you know, the New York Times hiring Brett Stevens, uh, Kevin Williamson being hired and fired by The Atlantic. Um, what is the point at this point, do you think, of the op-ed page? Is there something to be said for hiring the contrarian who you know is just going to irritate your readers? Uh, there's certainly something... To- but he said, for having a broad diversity of views represented on the op-ed page. <laughs> That's, That's <what laughs> not quite the same as hiring a professional stirrer who's just going to say outrageous things for the sake of it. And I'm afraid there are quite a lot of people in the United States, well, in, in, in Europe as well, actually. Brit- Britain does not lack for them. Indeed. Whose only job is to say things so obnoxious that they get talked about. It's, it's, uh, it's even been said that they occasionally get published in the Times. Well, very, very rarely. <laughs> very rarely. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. I'm afraid this is one of the um, sad things about modern-day press journalism, that it's having to compete with this noisy and very greedy world of social media where all the attention goes to people who make the most noise and cause the most sensations. Uh, and I think the New York, New York Times is very foolish to fall for that idea. I also think they're very foolish to spend a great deal of time analysing their own entrails Nave, as to whether anyone case. cares. Yeah. Oh, the, but the New York Times is, is legendary for that. The, the American media is in general. Uh, they, they find no subject in the world as riveting as themselves. Indeed. And I wonder who else finds it as, as amusing uh, or interesting. Almost nobody, I suspect. So, Sebastian, is this a big thing in German newspapers? Do, do you have a subculture of people who just have terrible opinions for money? Navel gazing? <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, I mean, yeah, no, no, no. I, I, I mean, I, the provocateur, the stirrer, the 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 hang 'em, flog 'em, send 'em all back variety columnist. 
Ah, uh, less so, less so. I think there is a there is still a restraint, even though we now have um, people with extraordinarily obnoxious views in Parliament, uh, 13% percent uh, of votes for Alternative for Deutschland. Um, uh, but but in in general, I think there is still a, a, a consensus, maybe slightly state consensus in Germany, that some things aren't. Um, joked or, or, or raved about or, or you know um, brought into the political um, debate so not quite not quite the, the, the polemicist I, I, I still I mean having lived in this country for a long time I still sometimes think uh, you can't be serious and then I, I, think I, I suspect that's a lot the of whole them, point I suspect a lot of them aren't That's the whole point of pol a polemic in 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 the Anglo-Saxon world, isn't it? Since the 18th century, that that you that you, um, where we uh, Germans maybe tend to be slightly overly serious sometimes. Uh, I won't put it any stronger than that. Um, the, the Brits, to me, seem to to um, put a premium on. Uh, you know, elegance of expression and 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 outrageous kind of opinions, which yeah, I suppose nobody takes Terry serious, don't they? Do they? Well, they? some do. I mean, Britain loves a good knockabout row. Uh, it's also good television. It's much more uh, amusing to watch than when you have uh, five wise grey heads sitting around nodding and they discuss some. You know. See, I disagree. I, I I find the opinionated knockabout on television shockingly tedious. Well, it's very tedious if it's just knockabout and there's nothing serious below it and it's also very tedious if it's set up and it's artificial and you're just choosing people because you know they're loud mouths but having a good vigorous debate where you're not looking for consensus isn't a bad thing the german model is very much working towards consensus it's felt that the the country is you know not really sufficiently self-confident in its own limits to allow extremism to get a voice uh, which is no bad thing Well, But that is the big model shadow in hanging over us. Yes, isn't there? Yeah. Uh, there's a shadow. That's right. Well, Britain may um, enjoy this knockabout. I don't know where it will go. I mean, the result is it's led nowhere. At that point, uh, or at this point, rather, however, these three grey-haired sages will have to leave it for the moment. That is the end of today's episode of Midori House. Michael Binion and Sebastian Borger, thanks for joining us. The show was produced by Augustin Machilari, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Amber Roberts. Our studio manager was David Stevens. Music next at 1900. Rob Bound is in with the Monocle Culture Show. There's more on the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200. Midori House returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. <laughs>